This is episode five of the Getty's Close Radio podcast. I'm Glenn Phillips, and I'm a curator at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. This podcast presents radio broadcasts that originally aired on a weekly program on Los Angeles radio station KPFK between 1976 and 1979. Called Close Radio, the program allowed artists to present sound and art projects via radio broadcast. Close Radio produced over 100 broadcasts by more than 90 artists. These programs challenge nearly every conceivable industry standard of radio broadcast, and collectively they present a phenomenal array of strategies to present performative works through sound. I've chosen 17 of the Close Radio episodes for this podcast to give a sense of the variety of projects and artists involved in the program. This podcast is made available in conjunction with the exhibition Evidence of Movement, on view at the Getty Research Institute's galleries at the Getty Center from July 10th through October 7th, 2007. If you would like to hear more episodes from the Close Radio program, they are available on getty.edu. Just search for the exhibition Evidence of Movement. The Getty would like to thank all of the artists who have agreed to let us provide their original sound works in digital format online and in this podcast. We ask that listeners respect the integrity of the original works and the artists who created them. Please do not reproduce this content without permission from the artists. Enjoy the program. Um, next Thursday night at 10 o'clock, for 15 minutes, Close is asking the public, you, to call in and do live pieces over the telephone. Uh, this is something new for Close, but we'll be doing it regularly, giving airtime to artists in the community through the telephone. We are calling these programs Dr. Earl, so please prepare. Um, as I said before, tonight's guest for about an hour is uh, Gene Youngblood. Uh, Gene Youngblood is probably best known for his book, The, Exp- <laughs> the Expanded Cinema, which was uh, popular in the early 70s. And, uh, here's Gene Youngblood. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think what I mainly want to uh, talk about tonight is uh, derives from the work I've been doing for the last seven years, which is uh, researching and writing a new book, (laughs) which is now seven years old for me, uh, about, uh, well, it actually has two parts, um, the effect of the mass media on human evolution, which I will not talk about tonight. And uh, there's a second volume of the work which uh, has to do with technologies which uh, seem to me hold historically unprecedented potential for uh, changes in the structure and function of the mass media. And uh, I think tonight I want to talk about these technologies primarily and sort of stay away from the the more philosophical aspects of uh, what I've been doing. Uh, I think what I want to do is, first of all, um, address some of the misconceptions and also some of the possibilities in six areas of technology, uh, which I'll uh, outline in a second. And then um, that probably will take something like a half an hour, 40 minutes. And then uh, I want to try to relate some of the potentials of these new emerging, mainly video technologies, uh, to the art world and uh, especially to um, problems of distribution of the new forms or or new mediums and forms of art that are being done now. Uh, We were talking uh, just a minute ago about, um, in a sense, uh, the art world has moved to a point where there seems to be a kind of an impasse. That is to say, the things, the, the kinds of things and the kinds of materials and tools that artists are tending to want to work with these days. Uh, Either it's just economically impossible for them to get access to the tools, to use them, and even when uh, those few rare individuals who are able to have access uh, do it, then then how does one you know sell one's work how do how do you market it how do you uh, exhibit it so forth so there seems to be a real um a real problem in the art world and, and i think uh although these technologies obviously have um uh, implications far far beyond the world of art that uh, this is at least one very interesting area that can serve as kind of a microcosm for talking about their more general relevance so the tools I want to 
discuss our six. Um, first one, cable communication networks. What most people think of as cable TV, but uh, I, I say cable communication networks because um, it's just the principle of communicating by cable rather than over-the-air broadcast, which is the point in that particular subject. And so we might include, in addition to cable TV, something like the phone system. <clears throat> That's one, uh, I say, newly emerging technology. has actually been around, uh, cable TV has been around uh, since the beginning of television, so it's not really new, but it's new in terms of its, the cultural significance being attached to it these days. Second uh, area of technology is portable video recording equipment. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. I think most of us uh, understand what that means. Uh, you know, at, at the level of you and I, it means the, the Sony Portapack. Uh, at the level of, uh, of industry, it means the ENG equipment that the networks are using. Um, third area is what I call movie publishing technologies, where uh, the word movie uh, refers to any form of audiovisual material uh, with motion and sound. That is to say, it doesn't really matter to me whether your movie has been made uh, via videotape or film. Um, a videotape of the 6 o'clock news is a movie to me in that sense. <clears throat> Therefore, by, by movie publishing technologies, I'm thinking mainly of video disc technologies and video, uh, magnetic videotape cassette technologies. There are a lot of misconceptions about these things, also a lot of uh, potential that I think has not been fully understood, especially especially in the art world, uh, and I want to talk about that. <clears throat> uh, the fourth area has to do with computer technology, uh, especially uh, the newly emerging home computer uh, technology, and my opinion about that is that that's where the revolution really is. Uh, Let's see, that's uh, four. The fifth one is uh, domestic communication satellites. These are satellites which uh, are launched uh, by and serve exclusively the country uh, that launches them, unlike the Intelsat system, which is global and serves the whole world. <clears throat> I want to try to integrate some of the things that these technologies can do uh, into into the other things that the other technologies can do, and one of the things I think about them is that no, that the potential of, a, of one of these technologies cannot be fully, fully understood without integrating it into the potential of all the others. Um, finally, uh, a vague general area which I usually call uh, new information display devices for the home, uh, and, and what I think mainly about that is... Um, large format video display which today is represented by video projectors uh, and probably will be for quite a while um, and also some some kind of facsimile printout device for the home so we have then six industries tool systems technologies whatever you want to call it cable communication networks portable video recording equipment <clears throat> video disc and video cassette systems um, home computer technologies or information utilities, however you want to say it, <clears throat> um, domestic communication satellites and information display uh, technologies. I'd like to point out that virtually all, first of, first of all, that virtually all of these industries or technologies either are actually right now in use or, uh, that is to say, on the market being used uh, or very shortly will be uh, in the case of... Um, video discs. Uh, they're not yet available to the public, but evidently will be by December. So we're really not talking future so much in, in that sense. I do want to um, address the, say, three to five year uh, prognostication in several of these technologies, but even this isn't really so, so much future prediction in that most of the, the decisions, both technical and economic, which will... Uh, determine um, the development of these tools over the next three to five years already have been made and the research and development is already going on. <clears throat> so really, I, I, I really want to characterize the, this discussion as a very present-oriented, immediate kind of thing rather than some kind of Flash Gordon uh, prediction of the future. 
What I think about these tools is that if you consider them not as separate industries or separate technologies, but as components of a single, unified, integrated communication system, then they can be seen as holding the potential for an historically unprecedented revolution in the structure and function of mass communication systems. My attitude about it is not to predict that this will happen, <clears throat> that is to say, my attitude in my work and this book I'm doing, uh, but to try to argue that it must happen, that if these tools didn't exist, we'd have to invent them, because uh, our problems today are precisely problems, uh, and that is to say all our social problems, economic, environmental, cultural, whatever, are precisely problems which are caused by the existing mass media and can only be solved uh, by totally reconstructing the existing mass media. And so my, my approach is that, you know, if the new tools didn't exist, we'd have to invent them. And in fact, they do exist. Uh, not only do they exist, but uh, big dollars are behind them. The, the most powerful multinational corporations in the world are, in fact, the ones who are uh, behind the research, development, marketing of these new technologies. So we're really not talking about some kind of subversive conspiracy uh, on the part of uh, some, some whacked-out inventors, but in fact, uh, we're talking about something uh, which uh, is rapidly becoming the, the main thrust of, uh, <clears throat> of industrial activity in the 70s and 80s. Just to sort of cover this notion of that, you know, that they hold the potential for a communications revolution, I want to talk about what I mean by that for, for a second. And I, what I do mean is, by the term revolution, radical inversion of the identity of a system. The system we're talking about is the mass media. Mass media to me means television, radio, newspapers, and theatrically distributed films. Because only those four message systems um, are characterized primarily by their use in cultivating and maintaining centralized mass audience. Other technologies, such as... Uh, <clears throat> books, records, magazines, uh, although they may also be used to cultivate and maintain large mass audiences, um, by far the, the predominant use of them is to cultivate and maintain many small special interest audiences. Only television, radio, newspapers, and theatrically distributed cinema, it seems to me, can be called then, in any real sense, the mass media. Okay, let's look at cable communication networks. The very fact that you're using a cable, that, that sender and receiver are discreetly connected by a cable conduit, um, carries many uh, profound and significant uh, possibilities. First of all, you have uh, the possibility of uh, unlimited channel capacity, either uh, using uh, electrical, electronic communications as we do now, or optical laser light communications, which is rapidly evolving. Um, and, you know, considering that the use of that kind of technology, we're talking, when I say unlimited channel capacity, we're talking literally thousands of color television channels if we had the use for them. <clears throat> okay, so what? I mean, you know, we people say about that, well, that, that means, uh, you know, more access to communications channels, more public access and so forth. That's true. What it really means to me is something much more profound, is that if you have a multi-channel distribution system, and by multi I mean you know, more than 20 or 30 or 40 channels, upwards of 100 channels, <clears throat> and if this thing is really going to be used in any significant degree, then you, don't, you cannot maintain mass communications as we understand it today. That is to say, you cannot actually have 50, 60, 70, perhaps even 30, um, and let's concentrate on television, so 30, 40 television channels actually in use and operating, you cannot do that and have a centralized mass audience as we understand it today. You cannot have mass communications as we now know it. Conversely, uh, you cannot maintain uh, mass audience uh, communications as we now know it and have 30 or 40 channels in use. So it's a mutually exclusive situation. <clears throat> and I think that very fact, that issue, is one of the prime political and cultural issues of our time. That is to say, seeing as how that's the case, there is a real serious question as to whether um, the cable television or telephone system... Um, 
the cable TV industry or the phone system, will ever actually do anything like the, uh, the myths that have arisen in the last 10 years about cable TV. On the other hand, there are many uh, indications that, that cable television is a growth industry. Uh, venture capital is uh, getting behind it uh, more recently as a result of the FCC having lifted many of their very restrictive uh, laws, uh, which practically prohibited everything that cable could do. And so we shall see. Uh, many observers these days uh, think that cable, the cable television industry per se will not be uh, the one to wire the nation, if the nation ever does in fact get wired, that it will be the telephone company, because it is in fact the telephone company uh, that's developing the, the real technologies that are capable of doing all this, that is to say the switched optical <clears throat> laser light uh, kinds of um, transmission systems that actually could transmit, switch, and handle the hundreds of channels and two-way communications that, the, you know, that has been sort of the ideal image of what cable TV should be doing. <clears throat> so the significance, then, of a cable communication network might be stated in several, you know, as, as it, uh, in terms of it being capable of doing several things. First of all, only through cable communication system can you have truly a decentralized, user-controlled feedback communication kind of process, like the telephone system. Decentralized meaning that control of it is distributed to the users. Control of what happens, when, when it happens, how it happens, and for what reasons, and so forth, like the telephone network. <clears throat> this principle of a decentralized, user-controlled, two-way communication system is exactly inverse, that's to say, in its structure and its functioning, exactly inverse of what we have today in the mass media, which is a centralized, one-way, mass audience distribution system. So that's one um, tool system which uh, clearly has this potential for inverting the structure and function of the mass media. And I, I want to concentrate on the massness and, and the fact that if this particular tool is to be used, we are going to have to learn how to have a society without the kinds of mass communication that we have today. <clears throat> I'm not saying this is impossible. I think it's very possible. It's just that and what I'm trying to point out is that the boundaries, the, the, the obstacles to the realization of a, uh, the kind of cable communications that, you know, that we've all heard talk about these last several years, the obstacles are cultural and not economic or technical. They are purely cultural and political obstacles, uh, and they are formidable. But let us just sort of summarize that as uh, as holding the potential for many for creating instead of a single centralized mass culture uh, a society consisting of many many hundreds or thousands of small special interest mini cultures as you will as as it were that is to say uh, uh, the possibility of uh, <clears throat> groups such as, uh, if there is any identifiable kind of audience that listens to this this particular program, let us say, let us assume that you have a, a conceptual art or a modern art uh, listenership <clears throat> who relate to the art world in a particular way. The ability of those kinds of people to uh, more fully and completely um, surround themselves with the kind of symbolic and cultural environment in which, uh, you know, in which art means that, and so forth and so on. Okay, I want to move on from cable now to portable video recording. The significance of, of portable video, there are many, of course, but to me, the political, the big overall view of it, is that for the first time in history, uh, this tool holds the potential uh, for distributing throughout the population um, a device potentially uh, usable by anyone, um, which generates the very same material which is processed by the mass communication network, that is to say, a video signal. Uh, everyone can you know, write on a piece of paper or use a typewriter and so forth, but that doesn't make books, that doesn't make newspapers. But a, a video system's output is a videotape, a video signal, ready to be uh, transmitted over the cable or broadcast. 
This is an historically unprecedented circumstance, regardless of whether we may think it'll never happen for whatever reasons, political or technical or whatever. The very existence of these technologies is historically unprecedented in that particular, in that they imply that kind of relation between people and communication institutions, which never was possible before. <clears throat> the question then comes... Okay, it's desirable to distribute throughout the population such a device. How can we do this economically and technically? What are the indications that we could uh, realize, for example, a um, color port pack a color video system of very high quality, approaching what we would these days call broadcast quality, although that's not really necessary, <clears throat> um, I just recently um, produced... Um, fairly major conference at USC, this was in March, uh, at the Annenberg School at USC, called The Future of Television. And what I did there was uh, brought together about 30 of the top experts in these six areas of technology to talk about the present state of the art and where they think these tools are going the next five to ten years. Almost all of them refused to talk about the five to ten year frame and uh, talked more three to five years. The video uh, people said that within three to five years, we can expect the following. A solid-state color camera, color video camera, which would not have tubes, would be solid-state. Because it's solid-state, uh, and you, you, you wouldn't have to deal with the problems that you do with tube cameras, therefore you could achieve a very high-quality image quality for a very low price because you're dealing with... Uh, these solid-state image chips that could be mass-produced and stamped out like cookies, the way uh, we do with the computer chips and pocket calculators and so forth, and watches. So you would have this solid-state color camera the size of, say, a, a Nikon 35-millimeter still camera, and then as a result of advances in um, magnetic audio tape recording, uh, which I... probably it's too complex to go into now, but the... Suffice to say that uh, in the next three to five years, we can see videotape cassettes approaching the size of audiotape cassettes using quarter-inch and eighth-inch tape, <clears throat> tape which um, will not have the same magnetic properties, the magnetic materials that current tape uses. That is to say, these new kinds of tapes would be metal tapes. They already exist. They're already tested and, and usable and proven to be feasible. The, the only problem is that you have hundreds of thousands of tape machines out there in the world that are virtually incapable of using them. So what we're really talking about is like second, third, or fourth generation consumer video systems will begin using this ultra-high-density, uh, ultra-high-quality metal tapes. <clears throat> Two or three hours worth of programming in... Um, cassette about the size of a you know a C90 audio cassette today. Therefore, you could integrate the VTR into the camera and have a single handheld unit like you would a Super 8 camera, putting out a very more or less uh, broadcast quality uh, color video signal for under $1,000. I asked them how much under $1,000, and they wouldn't say. I mean, you know, I said $500. Or, you know. I think they were thinking something seven $800. Okay, so that's that's the state of the art there within the next three to five years. The obvious um, thing about that is that this means widely distributed ability to produce movies, and again, where movie is anything that you want to call it, you know, any any image and sound in motion, I call a movie. There are some implications of that I'll talk about later. I want to move on now to the. Uh, found what I call the movie publishing industry, that is video disc and video cassette systems. Um, after about 10 years of uh, false starts and uh, overblown publicity, uh, the video disc uh, technology uh, is about to be marketed, the MCA, uh, Philips MCA, DiscoVision system, which is the optical system which uses... Um, digitally encoded disks which are read out by a laser beam that's bounced off the surface of the disk and so forth. I think we're all fairly familiar with that. If we're not, we will be because they're embarking on massive uh, publicity hypes uh, set very soon because <clears throat> the thing's going to be marketed for Christmas. Um, so anyway, it's finally coming on the market. Um, 
my own opinion is that this is going to be an enormous success. Uh, that is to say, not necessarily the MCA disc, but the whole movie publishing industry in general, um, for any number of reasons. Uh, but let me just characterize what I mean by a movie publishing industry. I mean an industry, a massive industry, that publishes audiovisual materials the way records, magazines, and books are now published. That is to say, through the same distribution networks that are already set up, uh, the same rack jobbers in the markets and, uh, and record stores and magazine racks and so forth that are already set up. Um, you will find the publishers of these uh, discs and cassettes being the same companies that publish magazines and records now. McGraw-Hill, you know, uh, A&M Records, uh, some of the big magazine companies, you're going to find their labels on the discs and then publishing them. Uh, big deals are already being made between uh, MCA and various other companies to, to you know, uh, allow them to use their replicating uh, machinery and so forth. <clears throat> I believe that this can be and probably will be the best thing that ever happened to movies, uh, to audiovisual communications in general. Um, because if you look at the mass audience principle, that is the principle of centralized mass production and one-way mass distribution to as large a captive audience as you can possibly get, and that's what I mean by mass communications, this principle, uh, which has, you know, held sway over, over the whole world of communications almost since the invention of, of movable type, has over the years been, you know, been subject to attenuation such that now, really, it only remains in audiovisual communications, in all other forms of communication, print, uh, audio records and so forth, magazines, books, uh, all of them are characterized more by special audience distribution than they are by mass audience distribution. Only audiovisual communications, namely television and movies, really are the last stronghold of the mass audience principle. I view the mass audience principle as probably the most destructive uh, thing happening in the world today uh, for reasons which we probably don't have enough time to go into, and I'll leave it to the imagination of the listeners who obviously... Uh, are people who appreciate uh, specialized, special interest programming. They wouldn't be listening to this programming. Suffice it to say that, in my opinion, the, the very principle of mass audience communications is responsible for the uh, obvious demise of the film industry, its quality, the, the kinds of, of uh, if you want to call it art, that are being put out by the film industry. It's responsible for the low quality of television. In fact, in my opinion, the mass audience principle and um, aesthetic creativity are mutually exclusive uh, notions. They cancel each other out. You cannot have one uh, and the other. <clears throat> Either you have specialized, special audience distribution where you can pinpoint the special interest groups that are most likely to be interested in the kind of thing you're publishing, and then you do that and you have freedom to do what you want to do, creative freedom, or you simply don't do it. And I think uh, any artist who has tried to work in the audiovisual field, uh, whether it be video art, the small sort of elite uh, <clears throat> group of video artists, or anyone trying to break in the film industry has experienced that fact. So the emergence of a movie publishing industry then holds, <clears throat> excuse me, what I feel to be enormous potential uh, for um, breathing life back into uh, audiovisual art and indeed making it possible for certain kinds of, uh, of workers in audiovisual art to exist at all and do their work at all. If you combine the potentials of uh, video disc and cassette distribution with uh, such things as uh, cable television, where, again, you're talking about special interest distribution for the cable, if it's to exist at all. If you combine that with portable video recording, where you have distributed throughout the environment all this potential for making audiovisual messages of whatever type, of whatever sophistication, for whatever purposes, the image begins to, uh, you know, uh, focus in one's mind of, uh, of a proliferating possibilities, uh, both for the producer and the as you will, consumer or uh, 
user of, of all this uh, material, that is to say, a far greater range <coughs> excuse me, of not only a greater selection of audiovisual materials, but far greater range of the kinds of audiovisual messages, the attitudes about it, expanding our notion of what all that can mean. <coughs> Excuse me, I've had a cold for a week. Um, okay, I want to say a little more about that, but move on first to the other technologies. Um, the computer technologies, really what we mean by computer technologies is more more accurate to say logic technologies. This is the sort of the Flash Gordon gee whiz, micro-miniaturized, uh, practically invisible technology that we see in um, IBM commercials on TV, I guess. <clears throat> what this really means is transforming almost all of the devices that we have in our home right now into what the, in the electronics lingo is called a smart device. So we can, we can look forward to smart washing machines, uh, smart uh, stoves and refrigerators and automobiles. Smart meaning the ability to put kind of uh, testing and control logic into a, uh, a mechanical system in order to make that system function much more efficiently. In fact, I think this technology is the solution to the energy crisis. But what it means in terms of the kinds of communications technologies that uh, we're talking about here is, for example, if you think of your television set or your video disc player as some kind of display device or you know, readout device of, of, of the material that, that you play through it, then you're really talking about not watching a tape or a film, but being able to analyze that tape or film. Probably most of us are familiar with the, <coughs> excuse me, the um, um, programmed instruction kinds of cassettes that you can get where you have a cue track and you have some kind of m movie or tape that's going on and, and at a certain point as a result of having plugged your cassette into a little computer device, the cue track stops the tape, some questions are asked, the tape might back up, so you know you can review the material and so forth and so on. This is fairly standard in, uh, in uh, the education world. So what we're, one possibility, for example, is say that there would be a movie, some classic movie, uh, distributed on disc or cassette. You might also find in the same record store uh, or bookstore where you bought that disc or cassette, um, a number of other cassettes which would which would be computer programs for analysis of that film that you've just purchased. So you might find Pauline Kael's analysis of the film in the form of a uh, programmed instruction Q-Track uh, type of a little computer program, which you would plug into, an, uh, into your video disc player, probably the second generation video disc player, which will be out, say, I should think, three years after this first one is out. Uh, which would stop the film, ask questions, make comments, make references, the film would go back and forth, so on. And you might be able to, you know, analyze the film according to many different ideologies and points of view. I mean, I think definitely we're going to see this sort of thing happening. So it's, <coughs> excuse me, so it's analysis rather than appreciation. Analysis rather than mere observation of, a, of an audiovisual work. Um, there are many other potentials of that kind of computer technology, which I may get to after I cover the other. I'm just I'm concerned about being able to talk about these others. So I want to move on for a second to uh, domestic satellites. Now, satellites are something that seems so remote, so expensive, so large and enormous that we really can't get too excited about them and um, really can't see that much relevance to our daily lives and all these other things that we're talking about. <clears throat> Well, in the conference that uh, I produced, the satellite panel discussion, at which I had four of the top people involved in that in this country, uh, turned out to be one of the most overwhelming, stunning uh, presentations that we had, because they're talking in three to five years about direct satellite-to-home distribution, well, direct port-a-pack to satellite-to-home uh, using a two-foot dish, which would be in your closet or in your attic or someplace, um, which would be receiving uh, 
publicly, which would be receiving satellite signals over satellite channels that are publicly supported and are public access channel, satellite channels, uh, <coughs> excuse me, made possible by the PBS satellite system that is currently being planned uh, in association with two other groups, the PSSC, which is the Public Service Satellite Consortium, and one of its member groups, PISA, Public Interest Satellite Association. Now, the PSSC, the Public Service Satellite Consortium, is a consortium of nonprofit educational cultural institutions, mainly colleges, uh, medical uh, institutions, and so forth, <clears throat> who, are, uh, who have banded together to make proposals for the use of satellite technology for nonprofit public service type things. One of the groups that constitutes that organization is PISA, Public Interest Satellite Association, which is not, uh, which does not represent large institutions like UCLA or so forth, but small, <coughs> excuse me, small uh, grassroots type uh, uh, organizations of, of a few individuals, most of them artists. And in fact, uh, PISA has submitted to NASA. Uh, proposals by several groups of artists in New York and Los Angeles, Chicago. Uh, one that I saw uh, was uh, by Keith Saunier, Liza Baer, uh, in, uh, with Avalanche Magazine in New York, uh, for various um, you know, art-oriented applications of satellite technology. So, you know, they're talking in three to five years of having extremely high powered uh, satellites, uh, making possible very small, low-cost receiving dishes that individuals could have. Definitely all schools and colleges and you know, will be having them. Uh, and therefore, a far broader range of access to uh, that kind of technology. Uh, basically, the, first, the world's first experience with public access satellite communications. Uh, needless to say, the satellite can link all the cable communication networks in the country and make possible many, many specialized ad hoc national networks. By many, I mean a thousand if you wanted them. <clears throat> Finally, I want to talk about um, information display, where I use the word information in its broadest sense. It could be a movie, it could be a page of a dictionary, whatever. Uh, and the two areas of... Uh, large format video display and some kind of printout facsimile device in the home. Now, as many of you may know, uh, the video uh, projection industry is suddenly a big deal and there are some 20 or 30 uh, mostly Mickey Mouse uh, video projectors on the market, the best of which is the Advent um, industrial model, which is around $6,000 now. Uh, and then the Advent has a kind of a consumer model, which is still quite expensive, around 2500 or 3000 I think. Um, and all of the stuff is for sale at places like the Video Center on Wilshire Boulevard and all that. Um, <clears throat> but if you, you know, this is very fine, but in my opinion, the images aren't that great. I mean, they're nowhere near as, as good as looking at a good Trinitron monitor. Uh, so... On the other hand, it's very clear that there's interest in large format video. I would love it if it were really as good as, you know, and it can be good under the right circumstances. The big $5,000 uh, advent under the right circumstances is very impressive. Uh, <clears throat> it's obviously not a consumer item. Um, so the question, oh, well, we might ask why. I mean, the other things we've been talking about seem to have some kind of direct uh, political and cultural significance, but, you know, after all, I mean, to have four-by-six-foot video in one's home, I mean, doesn't really change the world. I, I don't, I'm not sure about that. Um, the way I think about this, uh, I usually think of McLuhan, who used to talk about uh, hot and cool media, and if I'm correct, he used to characterize uh, something like a theatrically exhibited film as a hot medium, where you, because you would have to go into this special environment, sit yourself down, turn out the lights, this, you know, the curtains part, and you do nothing but watch this uh, movie, and this, you characterize that as a hot medium. Uh, as opposed to television, where it's something in your environment, you can be walking around the house doing other things, doing your work, uh, it's just on, it's part of the environment, it's a cool medium, yet has some kind of more profound effect, uh, because it becomes part of your life, and so on.
Well, it seems to me that if we characterize television as a decentralized, user-controlled feedback communication system uh, in which <clears throat> the the act of using the system requires much more um, much more participation on the part of the user than than we have now. I mean, now we you know lay back and let television happen to us. In this new kind of structure, if and when it does evolve, we would have to happen to it. We would have to go to the system with a need, manipulate the system to retrieve from it the uh, you know the services which satisfy our need. And we would be um, interacting more often than not, I should think, with um, audiovisual materials which are extremely relevant to our personal lives, unlike the kinds of stuff we see in the mass media today, which have very little relevance to our day-to-day -day living, which may have been produced by our peers somewhere in the world, by our friends, or perhaps even by ourselves, and it seems to me that uh, this holds a political, cultural, and aesthetic um, significance um, in which the ability to display this material in a very large format, in a very high quality, uh, you know, high resolution format, in terms of the realism, the impact of it, becomes really a political, cultural, and aesthetic issue of some significance. Therefore, the question then comes, well, what are the technical and economic possibilities for achieving truly high-quality, uh, large-format video in the home. At my conference, the, uh, it was made clear that this is going to be possible, obviously, eventually, by the, you know, the old um, <clears throat> science fiction myth of the uh, solid-state wall TV panel, you know, that we've seen in the, all the way from Metropolis to 2001. Uh, but that appears to still be, you know, 10 or 15 years away. In the interim, uh, it appears that uh, video projection uh, is only in its uh, very, you know, in birth stages, and that the kinds of video projection we see today are going to be totally eclipsed by uh, second and third generation home video projectors within the next three to five years. Mainly these are uh, what are called light valve projectors, where unlike the kinds of video projectors that we have today, which, which merely reflect and magnify the image off of a TV set, which is inside the projector. <clears throat> the second generation projectors would be more like film projectors, where you, there would not be any TV set inside the projector that you're using a bunch of mirrors to reflect and bounce off a screen. Um, but but uh, I, I really can't go into it technically because of our time, but a device which would um, project an image directly on the screen, the light would go through the image directly on the screen, more like film. Uh, they're talking about, when that gets to be solid state, which, which they're talking about five years, <clears throat> having a device that you could sit on your table at home that would be approximately the size of, say, a um, uh, Kodak carousel slide projector, which could throw a, say, 4 by 8 6 by 8 foot uh, image that would have better than 16 millimeter film quality. Uh, for under $1,000. Okay, now, I think I've, you know, try, kind of covered the, the potential there, and it seems to me that there, there is, in fact, a, a potential for radical transformation of the mass media as we understand it today. <clears throat> I often get a lot of uh, people who, who say, you know, that this is my fantasy, my vision, and uh, it's, it's unrealistic and idealistic because, in fact, the powers that be, etc., would not permit this to happen. First of all, this is not my vision. Uh, it's simply, you know, the data that I've uncovered in researching the, uh, the various industries involved. This comes from the people themselves who, you know, this is what they claim they're to be doing. Secondly, um, they are the powers that be, and they are the ones that are producing this hardware and this technology because it happens to be that they feel this stuff is going to make money, a lot of money. I think they're right. It may be that this is one of the rare circumstances in industrial life that um, what makes money may also be good for people, or let us say at least hold the potential for some good for people, depending on how we use it. It seems to me one of the one of the good things that could happen in this <clears throat> is as a result of the radical transformations in distribution that, that this makes possible, art 
all kinds of art, but especially audiovisual. But after all, I mean, uh, you know, a videotape document of of, um, of a theater piece suddenly becomes an audiovisual art. Uh, so let us say that one of the results, as a result, uh, as a result of this transformation in the distribution patterns and processes, would would be um, a much more powerful role of all the arts in our society. As a result of the ability of autonomous individuals and primary groups to begin to surround themselves, uh, to, in a sense, to create their own symbolic environments. Today we can go to uh, a bookstore, a record store, and we can select, I might go into Tower Records and there might be, you know, who knows, several dozen versions of a particular Beethoven composition, each having its own particular interpretation. In uh, in text in, in printed texts, uh, there might be literally hundreds of books on a given subject, each from its own political ideological uh, point of view, uh, its own analysis of that subject. So I can go in there and I can control my information environment by selecting this particular approach, this particular point of view, this particular way of characterizing this phenomenon, and I can have around myself reflections of who I am in the art and the information that's around me. So in that sense, I control my symbolic environment to that, to that minor degree. Because the audiovisual domain is still dominated by the mass audience principle, this control that I have over the other kinds of media mm, seems to be politically impotent because of the weight and the force of the mass audience principle in audiovisual communications. If we assume a radical decentralization of that as well, then it seems to me both an aesthetic and political force to be able to control your audiovisual environment as you do your print and audio environment. It means for the artists, uh, more artists being able to do more work, perhaps even earning modest livings at their work the way many writers do these days in, in journalism and book publishing and so forth. At least at least earning some money, which, you know, these days one earns nothing in making films and videotape. Uh, okay, so what, okay, let's put it on the level of the film industry. Okay, at that level, what you're going to see as a result of, of the distribution is more people making more movies for cheaper amount of money, and therefore more real kinds of things. You're not making, you know, you're no longer making um, roller coaster and this sort of stuff because you don't have the budget. And the reason you don't have the budget is you, you don't have the audience anymore. Now you're dealing with special interest audience, and this audience may be one person in Laramie, Wyoming, one person in Bangladesh, one person in, uh, you know, and here and there, and then you're collecting all these people together. Suddenly you've got a million people, and you've got a pinpointed special interest audience distribution system already up that knows where those people are and knows what to distribute to them. It knows, for example, that this town is a college town. This town is an old people's town. We do not distribute the same kinds of programmings to those towns, like, un unlike the way we do with television. Everything, we just, everything goes everywhere to the same, you know, the same thing goes to all people. Um, more people making more art, having more freedom to make the kinds of art they really want to make, from the producer's point of view, from the, uh, I don't want to say consumer, and I don't want to say user. I haven't really thought of a term of what the, let's say observer. From the observer's point of view, a far greater selection and spectrum of kinds of art and approaches to kinds of art uh, than has ever existed, literally, in the history of the world. <clears throat> and it seems to me this would do several things. First of all, dramatically increase the public's appreciation of the history of art and the nature of a particular kind of art. For example, in film, probably less than 3% of the films that are made in the world in a given year are ever seen by anybody. If people could actually see what movies really are, they would be astounded. Movies are not what Hollywood makes. <laughs> Movies are what any human being may make somewhere in the world today, somewhere, making a movie. They're, they're, they're virtually uncharacterizable. So I think the first thing that may happen is, you know, the sudden wave of realization of how we've been deprived over the decades, of literally uh, as though it were some kind of totalitarian um, regime to 
prevent us from, uh, you know, knowing the reality of, of the particular kind of art, although I don't think it's, I wouldn't characterize it as that. So, first of all, appreciation. Then, a feedback from the audience to the artist as a result of the ability not only to watch these things, but to analyze them through the stop stop frame, reverse frame, slow crawl, back and forth capability of the of the video disc machines and so forth to analyze the film and then feedback to the artist, a much higher level of feedback in terms of critiquing and appreciation of that work. Therefore, it seems to me a very healthy cycle might occur where the, art, the, the artist produces art, the audience appreciates, analyzes, and feedback, feeds back a very high level of critique and appreciation of that art, which the artist might then you know, ingest, produce another work of art, perhaps a, a bit more sophisticated as a result of that feedback, then out again to the audience and back. I think we might find a very healthy kind of uh, uh, injection of energy into the, into the whole art world and a, a gradual dissolving of the difference between political concerns and the art world, because, for, because after all, what is the ability to control one's own information environment if it is not a very political act? I mean, to me, the, the, the most powerful political um, process that goes on is that which the mass media do, which they synthesize and define reality. For most people, most of the time, the product of the mass media is reality. That's, it, it is what is, and what is, what is not in it does not exist. The mass media define, for most people, most of the time, what is and what is not, what's important and what is not, what's right and wrong, good and bad, and what's related to what else and how it's related. We don't have to believe their definitions of those things, but in the absence of other descriptions and other definitions, we're left alienated with a just this vague hunger for, for something that we can believe in, which is not a very powerful political stance. So it seems to me that the, the, the ability to surround oneself in, in a personal way with meanings, values, models of behavior, descriptions of possible realities is a very profound political process and political act. And the, the almost certain uh, disintegration of the centralized mass culture as we now know it as a result of these technologies um, is a profound political issue which I personally don't see any way around. I mean, I, I cannot imagine how it's going to be stopped in this country. And that's right down the artist's line. You know, the artist need not have uh, a political notion in his or her head. They could just merely go about their merry way making their art and indulging in their fantasies, and, and, but doing so in a distribution environment which does not now exist. And it's that distribution environment which would give the political significance to the artist's works. I had a lot of other uh, things I wanted to say about these various technologies. I see we have about, what, five or six minutes left here, hmm? Well, we actually have. We have ten minutes ten left. Ten minutes. Uh-huh. Let me make a few remarks about the video uh, disc uh, and cassette publishing things uh, just happens to be on my mind tonight. What I think is going to happen uh, is that uh, the MCA optical video disc is going to be out this uh, December. It's, it's got a playing time of a half an hour per side, which means that to distribute feature films, you're going to have to have a changer to automatically change discs. I understand that they've got this down so that there'll be just a few seconds delay. Nevertheless, it's a mechanical... Uh, process. Now, any, anywhere you have mechanical operations, you've got possibility of breakdown, and you know, not to mention just the general undesirability of any kind of delay or break in the thing. Uh, <clears throat> so that, quite clearly, uh, any second-generation uh, video disc players will will be better in that you may have an entire movie on a single disc, or at least you know, just two discs instead of three or four, or whatever. So what I think is going to happen is that the other uh, manufacturers are waiting in the wings and they're going to let MCA break the ground. They're going to let them establish that there is a market for this stuff. And then I should think, say, two years at the most after uh, MCA introduces its gear, uh, RCA and others are going to come in with vastly superior 
technologies, which they already have in the labs and already working on. RCA's capacitance disk system, I think, could be better. However, so you might say, well, you know, MCA surely knows that. I mean, they surely know the limits of what they're doing. Why are they doing it? Well, my opinion is that the this optical video disc technology is so has such profound implications in other areas that it was worth it to them to develop it ostensibly for video disc because for example they have achieved the highest packing density of any information storage and retrieval system in existence something like uh, <clears throat> 50 billion bits of information on one disc um, you can get some something like three or four hundred hours of stereo music on one disc. Okay, this means on a single disc, a music library, you know, two or three times greater than most people have in their homes now on a shelves on one disc, which would be obviously, you know, uh, programmable and computerized, accessible. Now that's that's something, and so I think you know it was, it was worth it for them to pioneer this technology for that reason, if not, you know, if not many others. Um, so I just wanted to point that out, that, you know, we can, we can see very rapid uh, improvements in all of this technology once it gets out. We shouldn't overlook, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, uh, video people have uh, objected to the disc because you can't record on it. Well, you know, you can't record on stereo LPs either, but we have audio cassette technology. We should not uh, forget magnetic video technology uh, as a distribution medium. I think you're going to find it very competitive with discs, although it's not today. The reason is that the consumer video market industry is just actually being born. And uh, as a result of the television network's domination over the world of video for the last 25 years, there really hasn't been much research and development in, in videotape because there didn't need to be because the networks had what they needed and that was enough. That was fine. Well, now massive uh, R&D is going on in, in, uh, in, in to find out how much they can get out of magnetic video technology, and they're finding they can get you know incredible, amazing performance out of this technology. So I, I think you're going to find it very competitive. the the real The real problem is in those cable communication networks, and over the next five, ten years, that's going to be the political issue of our time. I, I truly believe it, e even if it, it's not recognized as such. But, I mean, to me, the, the decisions made there about who's going to wire the nation and how they're going to wire it according to what kind of network structure, which is going to permit what kinds of interactions between what kinds of people and so forth, these are the, the big issues of our time. The fact that they're totally ignored are, to me, I mean, to me, that's the problem. I, I think that's, you know, mostly what I what I can think of to say about it now. Do you have any questions, Paul? Um, well, just the last thing you said, um, how how is it being ignored? How is the I had one of my questions was is about the political questions that are being asked about the telephone company and the cable system, and uh, how is it being ignored right now? Are people I know that like in the uh, what was it? early 70s there was lots of video groups that were trying to get public access channels in New York and San Francisco mm -hmm. and Los Angeles and there was a lot of kind of public access mm -hmm. interest and uh, a lot of kind of cable involvement you know and trying to find out things about the FCC and changing the FCC rulings and that you know on cable television and um, what seemed to happen is, is the a lot of people just sort of gave up. They expected something to happen that didn't happen yeah. as soon as they thought it would. And I think it's kind of produced a kind of apathy with a lot yeah. of people. And, uh, well, it, and it just, like you were saying before, like they're talking in terms of five years, ten years. It seems like to wire a nation, we're talking... Oh, you're talking decades, yeah. Decades. decades. Um, okay, yeah. First of all, I think a lot of that disillusionment comes from, you know, really... Um, inappropriate expectations, really false expectations, you know, a lot of idealism, which was really off the wall. I mean, you know, we all were victims. I mean, I was guilty of it. You know, we all were. Um, that, that is one of the big misconceptions I wanted to point out tonight. Maybe I forgot that, 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 you know, cable TV, especially the cable television industry, is far, very, very far from even approaching the kinds of images that we had about it.
Mm-hmm. In fact, my own opinion is that you know, if if any of that stuff is ever going to be realized, it's going to be because the telephone company will do it. Now, I don't know; it's really too complex to go into right now. But right now, in Congress, there are a number of significant bills before Congress. The Bell Bill, which in which once again, I don't think they're going to succeed, but once again, the phone company is challenging um, Congress to define the phone company's role. You know, they're in a sense saying, you've given us a legal monopoly to uh, conduct the uh, personal communications of this country. Uh, a lot, here's, here comes these upstarts, the cable TV industry and other, other kinds of data communications industries. And so, in a sense, phone company is saying, look, do we or do we not have a, uh, you know, a monopoly because this is right down our line, this is what we do. And, you know, they're in a sense saying, although not officially, but in the, what they're saying is, you know, we can wire the nation, you know, we can do two-way TV, that's the video phone, you know, we can do this, you know. I, for one, think they ought to, but only under circumstances which are very unlikely given the economic character of this country, that is to say, only under socialized circumstances, only mm-hmm. if the mass media were to be considered common carrier public utilities. Uh, one of the purposes of my work is to, you know, is to try to generate that awareness that, in fact, uh, public access to communications channels controlled by the user and mm-hmm. public access to information specified by the user are vital resources, not only for the individual, but for the whole nation, and mm-hmm. should be recognized as such, and that the technologies which would make that possible ought, therefore, to be common carrier public utilities, supported by public funds, operated as common carrier public utilities, <clears throat> in which uh, they would be supported by public funds without government content control. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, people say, well, what a fantasy that is. Well, that may very well be. To me, that's the problem, you know, that it's considered an idealistic fantasy, that it's so far removed from anything that, you know, that this country would consider feasible uh, as, you know, that they might even laugh at it. Uh, this, this, to me, you know, means that we're in serious shape because, you know, to me, those issues are the real issues of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not going to be solved by the cable industry as it presently exists, not for decades. And in those decades, the the phone company will have done it. I'm sure. You know, so uh, you know that, that that public access thing is still going on. Of course, I mean, you know, we have it here in L.A. and you know, people at UCLA and other places are producing stuff for it. Still going on in New York, but it's true that kind of uh, that kind of buzz we all had about it has sort of died off because I think we've realized that you know it really is not what we thought it was. So the most immediate sorts of uh... Uh, technological, uh, I guess, revolutions are happening in the uh, cameras. Yeah, it'll happen in portable video, in in distribution systems, in satellites. satellites. It it will happen in satellites, amazingly enough, and most especially in, in computer things, which we now have, you know, I mean, it's so vast, that area. We can't even imagine what's going to be coming down, you know, in the next three, four years. But I think, you know, for example, from the computer hobbyists' world, we're going to really, that's where the first home computer terminals are going to come from, you know, from some freaked out guy up in Palo Alto, who's, you know, who stays up three weeks on cocaine and produces the greatest home computer terminal ever. We're going to see some really uh, massive stuff. And the, in some ways, those are the ones that are least blocked right. by, by political right. or... Uh, right. Uh, That's it. They're they're all, you know, there are some blockages in the in the satellite domain for sure, but all the others are really not blocked at all. It's just that cable, you know. That's where you get into really dealing with the masses and the public. That's where the power is. That's where it's the real battle is. Uh, we don't have much time, but I had one other question. Is and maybe you can answer it quickly. And that is um, that that problem, the cable problem, and the political problem that's in the United States would. Is there a problem that it's existing like that in, uh, say, um, third world countries? No, no. In fact, an irony of ironies, I think that indeed there's a very high probability that this stuff will be done in third world countries Mm -hmm. before it'll be done here. And in fact, I mean, I think it's a very serious issue in terms of the balance of power, as it were. Because any nation that does that is going to increase its internal energy and power. It's, It's just, it's, you know, it's, how should we say, you know, it's, its power of mind, of just the, just as a result of that increased interaction amongst people, mm-hmm. will make any nation incredibly powerful in a, in a very short period of time. And yeah. uh, you know, this is significant. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, we don't have much factor through, and um, uh, <clears throat> we want to thank Gene for being here tonight. Um, as I said before, next week uh, we're starting something new, and that's where we're giving um, uh, the 15 minutes of close that's usually on next Thursday night. We're giving that to uh, the viewers, or the listeners, I'm sorry, and uh, to do as they want. In a sense, we would like the artist to call in and use the telephone, and um, that'll be at uh, 10 o'clock. And uh, this has been Close Radio. Thank you. <laughs>